Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for all your support. Again, you've been amazing. I'm never going to stop saying it. I'm so grateful for all the letters, the texts, the tweets, the FedExes, everything. There's nothing like it and can't do it without you guys. And I'm really excited about the show today. Got an incredible program that's very inspirational with my guest, veteran executive producer, Ricky Hughes, whose resume is incredible. And some of the things that she's done are just beyond belief and so exciting to talk about. And when I sit across from Ricky, I really get a great feeling from her, a great sense of calm. And immediately when she sat down, I just felt that everything was going to be okay. And I always thought in my life that that was one of the qualities about myself that I hoped I could get across to people. And I always wondered where it came from and how it was, but I knew that Every time I was around, somebody was calm and present in the eyes of the storm that I felt comforted and I felt like I'd be the most productive person I could possibly be. And I felt like anything was possible. And most importantly, I felt a sense of trust and faith. And when I think about Ricky, and her most recent work, working with Dave Chappelle, 
on his Netflix special entitled Age of Spin. I think what it must take for Dave to sit across from somebody and trust them with his life's work, trust them with his material, his image, how he's presented, how the lighting is, the sound, to be able to put together a special that he knew was going to be his first foray back into that area of the business in a long, long time. And the answer is there's very little people you trust in your life to be able to do things like that. But yet Dave sat across from Ricky Hughes and thought to himself, I trust this woman. I know that if I give her what I'm most proud of, she'll treat it as something that she's most proud of. And with the group of people that she worked with, including a longtime amazing producer-director, Stan Latham, they came up with gold. And after all the tapings and all the shows that Dave did at the Palladium, and with all the requirements they had to take care of to make sure that everything was flawless, at the end of the day, Dave Chappelle knew that he'd done something special, and he knew that his vision was executed by the people that he trusted the most. I think the biggest thing to take from Ricky is the fact that, look, if you can figure out a way to create an environment around the people you work with of calm, of a feeling of comfort and a feeling that everything's going to be okay and a confidence that you instill in people with your work ethic and the way you present yourself and your team, I think you'll have the greatest chance of having the kind of career that Ricky Hughes has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Without further ado, I am going to introduce the woman of the hour today, Ricky Hughes. And I'm very excited. And you're going to have a great time. Ricky Hughes is a veteran producer of comedy specials, award shows, and independent features. She is currently the executive producer and showrunner of Hood Adjacent with James Davis for Comedy Central, as well as HBO's upcoming comedy special, All Deaf Comedy Series. After leaving the music business, Hughes began her television career producing award shows such as the BET 25th Anniversary Special and the BET Comedy Awards. 
She then went on to produce stand-up series and comedy specials such as the TV1 series Who's Got Jokes, starring none other than the nicest guy in show business, Bill Bellamy, and the breakout Cat Williams special called It's Pimpin' Pimpin'. Starting in 2006 and for the next decade, Hughes served as the co-executive producer of TV1's nightly series Based in After Dark and became the go-to producer for the BET fashion and music specials Rip the Runway, Hip Hop Awards, and BET Honors. In the last year or so alone, Hughes has been the executive producer of Dear Mama, a Mother's Day special for VH1, the ABFF Awards, a celebration of Hollywood for BET, an independent feature starring two of the biggest social media stars called Digital Lives Matter, and of course, the highly anticipated and amazing comedy special on Netflix called Dave Chappelle, Age of Spin. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Ricky Hughes. Well, thank you, Barry. I appreciate that. No worries. We're going to have fun today. Who is that person? Who is that person? (laughs) Whenever I do the bios for people, they always say, who is that person? When I read my own bio, I say, why is that person existing? (laughs) And what is he doing here sitting down across from people? I have so many things to ask you. Firstly, obviously, this business is all encompassing and you try to figure out how to be the best representation of yourself and work. And when you go into a project, let's say you're doing the BET Comedy Awards, the people at BET, they don't care that you have some personal things that you're going through. They don't care that it's your husband's birthday. They don't care that you had a vacation planned. All they care about is that they own you. They have your time and they want you and they don't want to hear anything at all. So. In your relationship with your ex, how much percentage was your part in it not working and how much percentage was his part? Because I always say it takes a really, really, really special woman to keep the train on the tracks. Men are like furniture. You just push them around. They're like a light switch. Okay, we're on, we're off. And women are complicated, but they understand the simplicity of a man but sometimes they mess with that simplicity to navigate and get things where they want them to be what was your part and what was their part look i take ownership i think i i played a significant role in it but also he married a career woman i had a career when i married him so it sounds good and it's really cool at first. And then when afterwards, when you realize, oh gosh, this is really her career. This is a lot of time spent away from the home, away from me. And then what, when that person has to figure out where they fit into that world, you know, sometimes it becomes really difficult. And I have, you know, two kids. So he not only married you with your career, he married you with the children. How old were the children when he married you? Um, seven and eight. How did you get to the point where you made a man who you love feel safe that not only taking on you as an amazing woman, but making the decision to take on your career and your children? And then secondly, 
what did your family instill in you in that area? You worry about your career first and relationship second, or was it like you take care of your man and you make sure you got that relationship going and then you worry about the career? Yeah, I didn't get that story. My um my my mom was way more traditional. Like she wants to feel like when you walk down that aisle, you're wearing a white dress for a reason. Like she's that for sure. Came from Seattle. That's her. My dad was so much more of a free spirit. He was like, love is great when it's great. When it's bad, it sucks. And just have fun with it. Don't go through the mental gymnastics and just continue to have fun and be clear about who you are. So your dad was like, lose your virginity early. <laughs> your mom was like, wear the belt <laughs> yes. until you get through with the ceremony. If, he would agree to say, rest his soul, he would agree to say, lose it early. But I felt like my dad was a realistic person where he said, listen, you can never stop them from getting together. So it's going to happen. Just make sure you it's on your own terms, Ricky. So consequently, I graduated, I was in college, still a virgin, just because it was about my choice and I owned that choice. Out of 100% of the girls you were around you during college when you were graduating, what percentage would you say had the same philosophy as you and were completely had stayed away from guys? I still have not met anyone like me, <laughs> except for my <laughs> sister. Like I just, it's definitely a different mindset but even as like, even in college, like all of my friends were guys. Like I always were friends with the football players and the basketball players and they were genuine friends, not people that I ever dated. And even in my job now, like I work a predominantly male industry when I worked in hip hop music, the most misogynistic industry you could probably find. And I still worked with all men. So, you know, there's something about working with men, understanding their simplicity and that men by all means, for the most part, don't like change. So if, if you give, you figure out what they need, what they want, have it delivered and it's sitting there for them every day, they're usually fine. What was your go-to line or thing that you did that worked when you knew a guy wanted to sleep with you and you knew he couldn't. The amazing, my dad always said, you know, just tell the truth. And I would just tell the truth. You know what? I'm not interested in this right now. I like you. I don't like you like that. And you'd be surprised how many guys are like, oh, this feels like she's going to be a lot of work. I don't even want to be bothered. So like, either they leave and get themselves together to come back to a better place. Like, oh, I have to really scepter her with a little more. Because I feel like most guys would just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks for the most part. And I just wasn't one of those people that just went for the, everything that was against the wall. So they realized they're like, you're marriage material. I get that a lot. Like you're the, you're the kind of one that you marry. Like you're not so much just the girlfriend or the side girl. Like you're the one that you marry. But you're a human being. You have needs. Isn't there some guy you're like attracted to, whether he's the one or he's yeah, not? I dated this one guy for years through college all the way until I, you know, got out of college. Then I got married. Then I dated one person for a while and then I got married again. I stayed, it was college, then work. You know, I always had another husband, which was work <laughs> or college. <laughs> Even if a guy you care about and you realize is a nice guy, he just wants to get some action. So when he can't get it there, he goes to the next person who gives it to him. How do you stay centered personally in your mind without losing your way, knowing that you're not in that world? 
I was just extremely cocky, <laughs> just to be honest. Like, I just felt like, well, you weren't worth it. And just like I had this such a high sense of who I was, you know, coming from my dad that everyone, he said, look, you only have the first time. You only have the first time once. So just make sure that they treat you better than your father can. And in college, I didn't meet a whole lot of people that treated me better than my dad. <laughs> just didn't. They just weren't there. Make great, met great guys. And even to this day, I have friends that they're like, oh, I want to get married. They've never been married. They don't have kids. And I, they're like, there's no one out there. I was like, oh my gosh, I meet amazing great guys all the time. Like, so I don't believe that. I feel like people treat you the way that you present yourself. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I'm really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, 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 way back. So let's go back to where you grew up, what your mom and dad were like when you were growing up, brothers and sisters, what the socioeconomic dynamic was there, and what was your first inspiration to get into this crazy business 
and I'm going to go for a third question in a row for you. When did you know that you had that chip in your brain that was like the work career gene versus the let's have fun and just relax a little bit and do whatever? Let's see, let's start way back. I grew up here. I'm a native LA chick. I grew up in um, View Park, which was near Baldwin Hills, which was um, a middle class black upbringing. Went to Westchester High School, and um, a lot of my peers were really in the same. Like, we still keep in touch to this day. Like, we're still, some of my peers were like Nia Long and Regina King, and you know, these people that have been in the business, they started acting early on. And so a lot of us have grown up since like sixth, seventh grade together. Um, so that's kind of what my, sorry, my water. So that's kind of what my background were. My parents got divorced early on, but my dad was supremely concentrated in my life. And he would call me every morning and say, baby girl, I just want to start your day off with love. Like no matter where in the world he was. So um, my mom did a great job. I have two older brothers. One, one older brother passed and I have an older sister and I have um, two younger stepsisters. And they just, you know, my brothers were super protective. They would walk me to all of my classes. And what are you looking at? Although they were by all means male whores, but God forbid their baby sister. Like I was just so incredibly protected. And my mom kept us every summer. We went to three different camps. We had to make sure we did tennis and a question like we stayed so busy. So we didn't really have time to get in trouble. But my oldest brother was he was that Eddie Haskell kid. Like we got in trouble and somehow he never got into the trouble because he was like the orchestrator of the trouble. Um, so my parents raised us with, you know, always be respectful and more than anything, like always have a sense of gratitude. Like gratitude was big. We were the kids at three years old, had to make sure we wrote our name for thank you cards. And still to this day, like my kids have to do thank you cards for every birthday, for everything that you do. I just want to share again with the audience that the handwritten thank you card is one of the most valuable things in any business in the world. And if you think that a text thank you or an email thank you is equal to it, this is one of the very rare times I will say this word, you are dead wrong. Handwritten notes are what it takes. To feel like someone took the time to just stop, write the note, mail it. You know, it's more than just, like you said, an email or a text. Like it really means like, oh, Regardless, they thought about me. Like they took a moment to think about me. It wasn't just a blip on the radar, but they, it, I mean, I still appreciate when I get them and I appreciate that it's part of my kids' pedigree now to do that. So kudos to you for instilling that, that, you know, it's a small things in me, especially with so many, like you said, so many people who are the same, you know, like what makes you stand out? What makes you have that integrity and be that different person? When I get an email Christmas card, I mean, it's horrible to say because I know it's the next step in trying to be thoughtful. I'm not discounting that person because there's three kinds of people. There's the people who never send a Christmas card. There's the people who send the email Christmas card. And this is the people who send the written Christmas card. And 
but when I get an email Christmas card, I feel horrible saying this. I can't wait to delete it because I feel like I want the world to be the way my mom told me it should be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel real old fashioned in those things, but it's just, I don't know. It's just the thing that, you know, we grew up with. Like it wasn't even negotiable. You know, it was just part of who you are and what you did as gratitude. So, you know, especially like raising kids in this business, like our, our kids have access to a lot. You know, our kids get, um, they get way more than a lot of other kids this age. They see more. And I just constantly remind my kids, you know, you've watched your mom be basically an entrepreneur her entire life. Like I've never worked on in-house to work for anyone. Like you've seen, if I don't work, you don't eat. And as much as you might have some really nice things, understand that they were all earned everything that's here. And so you have to have gratitude. And, you know, one time the kids had, um, they were just throwing things down on the ground. I said, if I see clothes on the floor again, I'm going to take them. Looked and saw, so I started every time I found clothes on the floor, I picked them up and I locked them in the garage and I kept them until they realized that all of their clothes were somehow in the garage. And I said, look, Rose is here to clean up. She's here to help mommy. She's not here to clean up you. You have to be responsible for your room, period. And they had to earn all of their clothes back. And I wouldn't tell them how they were going to earn it. They just had to figure out how to earn it. And it's those things that are like, I just have to, like, you guys have to have a moment to be gracious I love that. God, can I borrow this? <laughs> My kids have had to earn so much. One time they had this, they were sleeping outside of their rooms because they weren't taking care of their rooms. I said, well, you have to earn the right. All I have to do is give you three square meals. That's all I have to do. Everything else is a bonus. My daughter immediately figured out what she needed to do, got her room back. My son was on the floor for probably a week. <laughs> he was like, I'm fine. Just send me a peanut butter jelly sandwich. I'm fine. <laughs> Just for the sake of our audience and myself, I'm thinking to myself, define a square meal. <laughs> All I have to do is put a roof over your head and some kind of meal. <laughs> so your parents, we know where you grew up. You know everything. We know where you went to high school. We know the people you were hanging out with. But what was the inspiration of getting in this business and what made you to have the mindset of being a career woman versus the kind of woman who writes in some kind of app that I like to travel? <laughs> well, I was supposed to be a pediatrician. Like from a child, I'm going to be a pediatrician. I was influenced by my pediatrician. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That was my trajectory. There, there's nothing taking me off of that path at all. I went to um, undergraduate at University of Washington. I did a double major. I was got accepted to UCLA Medical School. Like I am ready to go. I'm on my path. Nothing's going to defer me. So I meet George George Jackson during the part of George Jackson um, with George Jackson and Doug McHenry, and I met him randomly at a restaurant. And um, this is a, at the time where soundtracks were really big they were really big a companion soundtrack to a movie was everything and what were they doing at the time that was inspiring to you there was um 
they were doing a soundtrack called um, for Jason's lyric. But you had to know something about what they were doing before that. I didn't know. We started speaking and he's like, you know, he's like, so you know, I was like, yeah, you know, I've grown up in LA. I've known some of the guys that you have an interesting new talent that you really like that's exciting to you. And I was like, well, you know, I love, you know, what's happening with, you know, Warren and Snoop and Dre. And that's before they were kind of Warren, Snoop and Dre. And so I brought them to the table and had a, um, and I met Ron G, who was Warren G's manager. So we had three tracks that ended up getting up, making it to the soundtrack. And um, then Ron, Warren's uncle said, I've got, a hit record on my hand. I have kids that have never been outside of Long Beach. I'm going to take them on the road. I need help. And I was like, okay. So I was like, well, how do I go back and talk to my parents and tell them I'm here for medical school? But he needs help with what? Managing them, like helping them on the road. He had a bunch of, it was Warren G. He had um, the five footers. He had a bunch of groups with him and they had a hit record and they had to go out and promote the record and do a tour. And he had, he's like, I need help with it. So he needed a tour manager. A tour manager. I had no idea what that Somebody was. travels on the bus with them. Yes, and I've had no experience in this. Keep in mind. How old are they at the time? We're all about the same age. Warren was like 20. I was about 22. He must have just turned 21. And I just graduated in 92 from college. So here it comes full circle because presuming you accepted the offer. Now you're on the road with 20-year-old guys who are surrounded by women who only want one thing and you're trying to keep it together and you're the woman who's not wanting that one thing. You know, I learned early, like I had to be darn near asexual on the road with these guys. <laughs> like they had to see me as the person who was telling them what to do and that's it. I don't necessarily need to be your friend. You just need to respect what I say. So that was kind of my trajectory. So I wore baggy, baggy sweats and, you know, all of these things. And it wasn't until I was. So you made um, yourself look unattractive. Just to keep it. But they did what they, if I walked in, they're like, oh gosh, here comes the buzzkill. She's going to make <laughs> us go on the road. Like I wouldn't let girls go, go on the on the bus with us. No girls could go on the bus? They, they couldn't travel with us. I was like, because I just saw Keep in mind, the R. Kelly thing happened while we were on the road. And um, I was like, I, I have to protect this entity. I had to understand, you like you have to protect the money. I had to protect this. They'd go on other people's buses and do whatever. But, but I mean, the lead singer, I mean, if I were him, I'd be like, listen, I'm a grown adult. Yeah, yeah, I heard all I'm that. I'm paying your salary. I heard all that. If I want to have a girl on the bus, she's going on the bus. No, it's not happening. I was I was the tough one. I was the one they didn't really want to see, but they just they learned to just deal with it. Like, let me just deal with her. That's fantastic. It was it was that thing, and it wasn't until I um when I worked, I started working with um well I left management. You know, there were like two really big moments. Did you consider yourself a manager then, or just a tour manager? Uh, well. It was more of a manager because once we came off road, off the road, we still had, you know, albums to deliver. You tell your parents, are they supportive? Surprisingly, I just knew my mom was going to go berserk. But I was like, if I have my dad there, it can lessen the blow. Because my dad's like, oh my gosh. And my mom surprisingly said, you know, sweetheart, I don't, um, I don't know if you'll ever get someone else to pay you to travel the world right now. 
And if you don't like it, you can always come home. So I deferred my enrollment. I was like, okay, I'm just going to go and see if this works or not. All right. So the tour was how many cities around the country and the world? We will start off just a domestic tour. It was considered the Budweiser Superfest. And it was with R. Kelly, Heavy D, um, Coolio, um, DeBrat, Jermaine Dupri. Tell our audience the craziest, holy shit story as a woman that you had to deal with on the road on that tour that would be the highlight chapter of your book? Um, I feel like it's two pronged. One, no one, when you go on a road, like half of your money comes, Kara Lewis was our agent, half of the money would go to Kara immediately, like, you know, you'd get the deposit. Then the other half you had to go pick up after every show. So I was the one with the backpack full of money that no one ever knew was the one who carried all the cash on the road. And keep in mind, these are the times where it's a little crazy, death row days, a lot of crazy things were happening in our particular genre of music. And um, then there was this other part that was called the R. Kelly holding tank that was on every show. I might get in trouble for this one. Um, and so after every show, Rob would say, if you're something, something, meet me at the back door. And all the girls would flood the back door. And there'd be this big tank with all these girls who were just waiting. And you kind of pick out which ones. And you would see moms who like literally brought their daughters in like lambs to the slaughter. Like, please pick them to be the one. And it was like one of the things where I was like, oh my gosh, this is your parents. But what else could this, this girl was basically being groomed for like somebody take her off her hands. So girls a girl would start on the tour and she'd be on one of the big guys bus and later she'd move down to the lower bus and to the lower bus so she kind of would get to the open act and sometimes they would end up on the bus where um with the crew the guys that are putting our stage together you know the roadie bus and then i was constantly buying tickets for girls like just go home like we picked them up in iowa somewhere and it's like now you've been just run through, like go home and that was like one of the like oh my gosh stories on the but it was a reoccurring story on the road so the girls in the tank every one of them understood if i go on the bus i have to sleep with these people I don't know what their understanding was, but they wanted to sign up. They would do whatever it took. They would stand outside in our in the lobbies of the hotel rooms. I mean, I don't think so much of this changed too much from now, but you know, it was like I just want to be chosen. Like whatever I can do to be chosen and I'll take whatever comes with it there. Like they were proud to feel like I was the one from this town. And the people that you were hanging out with they had to wait till R. Kelly chose all his girls. Well, they, it was kind of a different kind of group, girls that were with Warren and then the girls that were with um, Rob. But, you know, Warren was way more accessible. So, you know, Warren's on the side of the stage. He's going to go out to the parties at night. So he would be able to meet people, you know, there. It was never that kind of thing for, but, you know, Rob was so much of a bigger artist at that time. How did you negotiate your salary for this first gig? I didn't. I had nothing to base it on. So 1993 or whatever it is, what's your first salary for that year? Or what are you making a week? Um, 
I think I ended up making like 50 grand that first year. But the greatest thing was because I had an artist that was a producer, uh, there was more opportunities at that point. People were, you know, people would spend a hundred thousand dollars for a warranty track. I mean, he was doing tracks for, you know, um, Michael Jackson and, and, um, Will Smith, you know, like there were some really big artists for him. So, you know, money was moving quickly. So when I realized that just my year was up to figure out what I was going to do for medical school and, and I, uh, realized I said hey uh my counterparts are you know even my mentor in school was three or four hundred thousand dollars of debt medical school debt making maybe eighty thousand dollars a year I was like I own my own home I have like at this point I was you know it was really hard to compare to that and I was like I still love medicine but I'm sorry guys I'm going this way all right so the tour finishes you're not going to medicine. What's the next step? So I worked with management for a while until I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Did you ever discover somebody? Nope, not at all. Um, and then I went and started working. Well, I had a brief stint where I worked with uh, the artist company A&R group with Roberto Ciccini, who was, uh, he represented directors for uh, commercials. And he wanted to start a music video division because all of his directors, commercial directors were now making money at other production companies doing music videos. And so he's like, well, I want to try to keep this money in. So let's bring somebody who's working in music to, so I went in there and wrapped the directors for, um, for a music video. And then I started working for priority records and I ran the international department for them. And it was such the most crazy, unique experience ever because you have these 20 something year old kids who have no budgets no um you know we just were selling millions of albums at a time masterpiece bodyguard from anybody with snoop and warren and um, snoop and ice cube and all that kind of stuff and um then when i was overseas emi did the final buyout of uh priority and i said i i went out of my contract like this industry is going to the toilet. Napster was just kind of around doing things. And I was like, I want out of here. So I uh, left um, EMI, I left Priority. And I just said, I'm going to produce. I said, I'm moving to TV and film. Had no history in TV and film. Didn't necessarily have any connections there. But I figured maybe just dumb enough to not know that I couldn't just walk into it and do it. So I literally met someone. I remember reading a um, one of my sorority sisters. We read an article in the Hollywood Reporter about this company called Hat to the Back, where Ralph Farquhar had just made a deal, and they were at Paramount. I was like, I'm going to work on the Paramount lot, just randomly. I don't know where that came from. Then I started. Um, I met Carl Craig, and we were doing some stuff with, with music videos. And he said, I've got a new show. I need some help. Your producer helped me on the show, gave me the address, and it was 5555 Melrose. I pull up, and it was a Paramount gate. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is where I'm working at Paramount, you know? And then I walked in, and he's like, yeah, I want to introduce you to, this is Ralph. Ralph like, Farquhar. Ralph Farquhar. Tremendous showrunner, amazing man. And, you know, 
Carl said, yeah, this is Ricky. She produces and so on. He's like, oh, okay, great. And we immediately just started working. So now it's baptism by fire because now I have to really know how to produce. Who hired you there, Ralph? Uh, Ralph. Well, Carl brought me on, but Ralph hired me. Yes. And what was your title? I was a production. I believe it was like a production coordinator position. But I was like, I can't take a coordinator title. Like I was like, he's like, I don't care what you call yourself. And I was like, okay, great. I'll be an associate producer. He's like, I don't care. He's like, I just need, this is what I need done. So I did more of coordinating and management duties, which was probably the best thing ever because it put me on the ground level of really understanding what needed to, what were the functions of a show and what needed to happen. But I got some great books. There's, you know, some great books that I read. What were some of those books that you read? Um, uh, was Donald Passman from the music side. Oh, um, one of them was um, budgeting and scheduling. And so I read these books and I felt like I had to know them top to bottom. So when anyone asked me something, I felt like if I didn't know it, I was going to figure out very quickly what I needed to know. And at this point, Carla brought me in, so I had to look good. He didn't want me to look bad either. So if I had questions, you know, I definitely had a support system around me, but there was nothing I wasn't willing to do to figure out what, how I could be great at it. So you're working there. What's next? We were doing a project called um, Big Black Comedy for Fox. It was when DVDs were really big, the straight to DVD project. Um, then we did a TV show for um, Fox proper called Dance 360. And it was shot kajillion, I think 65 episodes in a couple of weeks. It was just dumb and insane. But um, it was a, you know, the show had a moderate success. And as much as whenever Ralph and Carl worked, I worked. So um, then Rose Catherine had- um, Rose Catherine Pickney was one of the head comedy development people at Paramount. An amazing, amazing woman, still killing it today. Dear, very dear friend of mine. And she was, you know, her and Ralph had a longstanding relationship from all of the shows he had done on, at Paramount. And when she went over to TV One, um, to run development. She's like, you guys, I need a hit show. I need a show. We need a show that's going to be noisy. That's going to be a flagship show. And so of course we go to our go-to, which is comedy and stand up. And we sat in a room and it was about jokes and what are we going to do about jokes? And let's add these pieces, elements to it. And the, it just evolved into who's got jokes. When we came up with the name, we came up with the logo. And what was your second choice for the name? Um, it was uh, jokes and laughs or jokes and laughs. It was something that was never going to see the light of day. Having produced Last Comic Standing for seven years, when I saw the show coming on, I'm like, we should have done this version on TV one instead of having <laughs> somebody else do it. But your show ran for four years and yeah. it was great and fantastic. Yeah, we traveled and all over with the show in, in shooting in Germany. Like it just, you know, Ralph always wanted to make it bigger. Like everything was going to be bigger and bigger. And, um, and part of the show was we, the winner got to do a stand-up show. So that's where it was kind of like, okay, Ricky, go, you know, do that. So who were your four winners? Um, we had, uh, Love Love. We had, um, Ron G, Sean Morgan, George Wilburn was our very first winner. And what was your credit on that show? Um, at this point I was 
co-EP. That's the second highest title in television. Yeah. It's, you know, it, we were a small core group to do all these shows. We had to really lean on each other. So more of the responsibility started to hit on, you know, we started, our roles started to get a little more defined. Now, what normally happens in this world is that people take notice of people rising fast who are competitors of other places and then they start coming after you for jobs and then you have to decide whether you're going to leave the people you're with leave tv one and go to other pastures or if you're going to stay so the offers obviously had to have started coming in what happened well the interesting thing was ralph's best friend is stan lathan an amazing an amazing guy one of the greatest producer directors yeah. ever. So I was in the middle of, I was on the road with um, one show, I believe might've been our last season of jokes. And Stan said, you know, Hey Ricky, you have, you know, I've known him from, you know, around and, you know, the house and family and things. And he said, I, you know, I have this project with HBO and everyone wanted, they knew they had to get into the digital space and no one knew what they needed to be, but they, HBO knew they needed to be in the space and no one wanted to spend too much money in it, but they, you know, they were in this kind of weird place. So, um, he's like, we want to shoot comics from all over for this digital platform. Can you help me? I was like, Oh, we're down for a while. And sure. No problem. Once again, fearless. I just jump into it. Like I got it. We'll, we'll do it. No problem. So I went on to do that show. I went on to, um, we called it, I think, um, on the road with Bob Sumner or something like that. So we took Bob Sumner, took Bob Sumner out. Bob and I sat down, we identified a bunch of comics and, um, and we went out and crazily shot them. Like we went to, um, seven cities in like 10 days and shot like 10 to 15 comics in every city. And we're actually editing on the road in the evening, downloading footage and editing and, you know, and then interviewing Bob out on the road, Bob doing Bob. And, um, and then we get Bob back. Sumner, probably uncredited, but definitely one of the main people who created Deaf Comedy Jam and has been a guest on this podcast. Yeah. Dear Bob. And so, um, so then, of course, Ralph was curious like you're going to work with stan what is going on you're mine you know, you know and i realized at that point that you know i'm really insulated although my career had been going it was still a very insulated career because you know the thought of even moving outside of this kind of circle was almost like taboo or forbidden and um and i was like i, I just kind of kind of got to grow sorry guys i gotta grow you know and then the last season of Deaf Comedy, um, Stan asked me to come in to help on that show. And at this point, you know, it was all, you know, water under the bridge. The last season of Deaf Comedy, Jay. Yes. What was the, I came in on the one where Mike Epps was hosting. Um, that's when I started working with Stan. If Ralph had taken you aside and said, Ricky, I love you. I love working with you. I 
I want to work with you as much as I can. I don't want to hold you back from any opportunities. What I'd love is for you to go to work with Stan and do great things with Stan, but I'd love to lock down this time period for the future where you're going to come back and work with me. Would you have felt better about it? Because when I hear a conversation like that, immediately the faucet shuts off and I'm gone. Um, no, I feel like I would have... I don't know about holding me for a period, but I feel like when Ralph would call, I would always pick up the phone. And um, that was never going to, you know, and we had some, you know, tough times with, you know, differences of opinions and things. And I was really strong with how I felt about things. And Ralph was equally strong as how he feels about things, but it was always ended in, you know, you're the boss and I get it. As a side note, is there any hosting talent that exists in the world that is easier to work with and as nice a human being as Bill Bellamy? No. No. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, and he does it with a smile and he's like, what do you need me to do, Ricky? And where do we need to, like, it's, I mean, still, still a close friend of mine with with the family now like we're friends just because of because of that we had you know we had some really sweethearts dear and gracious guys i feel like a host always has to be gracious what do you think it is about bill and why the rest of the world can't be like that what is it i don't know you know bill is just so and 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 he definitely has like he has a pinch of like he just goes with whatever you say but he just takes it with so much grace and class and just said, okay, what do we need to do? Let's get the job done. He's always been willing to roll up his sleeves to say, what do you need me to do to help? Which is amazing. Never an ego trip and, and has been consistently the same for so many years. And looks younger than he did 25 right. years ago. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's yeah, he's definitely someone I'm, proud that I've worked with and learned a lot from him and being gracious. And, and you know what else is crazy is that there's another thing about Bill Bellamy. The greatest geniuses in comedy to the people who are next to homeless in comedy, there isn't one person that doesn't love him. There isn't one mm -hmm. person that says, ah, that guy isn't funny. My go-to is is Bill. I mean, he created the word booty call. Come on. Like you just love Bill and you just want him to win. Like at any given time, like I always want to push him forward. Whenever That's I fantastic. Can. So tell me how you got into the BET world. So part of that, when I realized I needed to just kind of branch out, I was like, I gotta get, I, I gotta move outside of my zone a, a little bit. And um, I started working with um, Nina Henderson Moore, who was the head of news at the time. And it was before the 25th anniversary while Bob was still there. And Nina was, um, and I came on to help her do the comedy awards. That's the comedy awards before they turned into the hip hop awards. But it was the comedy awards at first, and we only did it for, I think, three years, two or three years. What's interesting is you were a part of both. Yes. And was that your first time getting the executive producer credit? Yes. 
and Nina was, I believe in you. We're going to make this happen once again. Now I'm all on my own. Like I don't have Ralph. I don't have Carl. I don't have like, this is just like Ricky and her foyer. And for our audience, when you're given the role to run a show and you're the executive producer, there are people that are residual effects that have been on these productions and they've been there before and some of them are producers and some of them are co-executive producers and then ricky comes in and they go off into the bathroom and say i can't fucking believe that they gave it to her and not me yeah let's make her life a living hell but she'll never know it's us <laughs> let's try to take her down so we can get the gig how did you deal with the sabotage mentality of the people underneath you and still navigate and keep them friends, keep them doing a great job, but knowing that there's people in the production that want yeah. to take you down? Yeah, you know, my approach was I can't do this alone. So I enlist, I sat down with every person and I said, tell me what do you love and what do you hate about this show? How can I help you do better at what you do? And, you know, one thing I learned early is people just want to be heard. Everybody just wants to be heard. And if I found if I can give them the floor to feel like they're heard and then see, find ways to implement them into helping me to greatness, then it's our win and it's not necessarily my win. So, you know, I'm a Leo, so ego always comes first. But I learned early on, like, I that has to be checked so that because I can't do it by myself everyone there's not one person on this on this staff that I don't need to do something so I have to find a way to enlist them to you know help me in the vision and so I really didn't have if it was it was so covert that it didn't come forward because I just sat down with everyone like I need you when the first production ended and it's over and it's been delivered and it's aired on the network and you're watching and the final credits roll and it goes to commercial. Do you say to yourself, I did an amazing job. They will fight to have me back here again to do this. Oh no. I literally will, you know, that show was like baptism by fire. And there's, it was also, I'm editing and feeding it back then at BT, you fed the shows as they're coming out of the edit bay. So there was really no time for an end zone dance. It was really like, I just have to get them to the Greek right now with this show. Like I've got to get this show on air and hopefully it's going to pass QC in a quick amount of time. The QC, for those who don't know, it's a process you have to go in production where there's deliverables from the network. It's like a war and peace novel of hieroglyphics that are impossible for any layman to understand, but there's people in each production, each place that know how to deliver it and you put it to the specs and you have it delivered and there are times where the network sends it back and says, hey, this isn't the way we said we need it this way, which raises the budget, pisses people off, and makes people yell at Ricky. Absolutely. So, you know, I came from the budget side of things. I came from the logistics side. So all of those things came into play as the creative came in. Like, it was always a number that stayed in my head. And... You know, those shows were darn near live shows. Like we 
cut them, cutting packages, getting things together and pushing them out the door as soon as possible. Yeah, those shows were like they weren't like uh, a late night talk show which shoots probably three hours beforehand and it's called live to tape and they do edit a few things and clean a few things up but it's a formula that they're so used to but these shows i think they normally are a week before they air or something like that aren't they yep and these were like in about a four-day window and um then which, which is very strange because it doesn't have to be that way but they do it that way for some reason. I don't know why. Well, my next show was the the post show for BT twenty uh, fifth anniversary. So at this point now, this is a live show. How do you handle that? Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I end up I'm sitting in in a truck in a it wasn't even a truck it was a um a Jelco a, a big box that they had put together basically put a control room inside of a box, and I have a guy that's. Um, on the EVS, which is a, a system that they use for, um, that they use playback for NFL, NBA shows where you see a, a play happens, then they immediately play it back and replay. So we were doing that throughout the show. So as I'm watching the show, I'm like, okay, cut this, cut this piece, put this together. So I'm editing, producing, trying to stay on the show and still prepping the show. So when people step off stage, like we have a place for them to go and we're prepped with questions and answers and all of these things. And it was absolutely the most chaotic, fulfilling, adrenaline junkie moment. And this was like, oh gosh, Ricky, you could sink or swim here. And I was like, nope, gotta swim. I remember Marty Colner told me he did um, Whitney Houston's uh, HBO special. And you know, he's filming the special. He's filming her for two nights. And the first night, it's like she is like a rehearsal kind of show, but he's filming it like it's the show. The second show, she's on some kind of whatever drug it is, and it's she's gone. And so he's got to determine whether to roll the old feed in this particular situation or not. He also told me one time he did the Garth Brook Central Park show mm -hmm. and he devised this incredible shot with a camera flying down a dolly in Central Park going literally a hundred yards on this dolly. Shots beautiful coming down through the crowd and whatever and the camera flies off the thing and oh just on the ground gosh. and that was his opening live shot. Oh my gosh. So what's happened to you? Oh, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think live-wise. You know, live is always such a blur. It's afterwards. Um, maybe it was uh, Tina Marie and Rick James had a big fight before the BET Awards. This was for, for the, on the main show. So it's right before, and they're supposed to come out and sing Fire and Desire. Um, and she's not going out. He's not going. Like, it's just one of those moments. And it's like, how do you do this? How do you get them on the stage right now? And then I think it was um, Jesse was like, send one down this aisle, one goes this way. And you never knew in the that they were like in a knockdown dragout fight right before. And it, but I feel like with live, there's so much that 
is always happening. We always just put on our seatbelt and go for the ride. Like you do as much pre-production as you possibly can, and then life gets in the way and has another way of deciding what's going to happen, and you just try to put as many fail safes and have as many packages and things you can throw to to try to get you out of it as possible. But for the most part, it is what it is. I used to record the Showtime of the Apollo on my VHS tape on the six hour speed. <laughs> a lot of people listening to this don't even know what I'm talking about, but VHS tapes had a two, four and six hour recording speed. The six hour was the shittiest quality, four hour the next best, two hour the best. And I'd go to my comedy club and I'd press record because I didn't know how to program the thing. And I'd record Showtime at the Apollo. And there was a performance by Jennifer Holliday singing I Am Telling You I'm Not Going that took my breath away. And I would watch it whenever I wanted to understand what kind of performers and what kind of people I wanted to be around. I wanted to be around the people who could do that to a crowd. As I like to say, if all of your performances and all the award shows you've ever been a part of and producing were drowning in the ocean and you only have to save one performance that is the most unbelievable, chilling thing that you still think about to this day that moved you more than anything else, what would the performance be? You know, there was a Maya Angelou piece that we did and we were the last people to shoot her. And I shot her in her house before that when we did the preparation for the package before. And when we got to the main show, Michelle Obama had opened, you know, had presented for her. And we did a piece with, um, we had these generations of women that spanned from, you know, really young uh, Willow, Willow Smith going up to, um, uh, Queen Latifah and um, even um, it, it was just it, it was a moving piece of generations and then Stevie Wonder had come in and he played every single instrument in the screen and we played it all back during that and he did Living for the City and then it rolled into somehow it became Spike Lee's tribute to because he got involved. Like, it was one of those moments where you just felt like this is something so special happening right here. And the everything just fell into place where it was pretty chaotic before we hit the stage. And it was just one of those moments where you felt like, oh, this is this is this is something great and this is something special. You know, and I felt like, oh, I'm felt humbled to be a part of the experience. How did you get involved with Dave Chappelle and how does a guy, despite relationships with Stan Lathan and things that have gone the test of time with Dave, you still have to get a gig and you still have to meet the man, no matter how much Dave trusts Stan Lathan, yeah. you still have to sit down and he still has to anoint you yeah. as a new member because trust is a big thing. And if anybody new is coming on, he needs to feel the vibe. For sure. So take us through how that happened, how it came about, and your meeting with Dave Chappelle. 
first of all, I just say I absolutely love and respect Dave, you know, across the board and another one of those projects where I just felt humbled to be a part of the, the, the experience and him trusting me to be, you know, one of these people to get this out here. Cause you know, it's something he really has thought about of course ad nauseum. Um, but you know, backing up a little bit when we had, um, we, when Mike hosted, um, Deaf comedy and Dave came out and he hadn't, he had been away. I think no one had really seen him for a long time. And he came out and Stan said, Ricky, Dave's outside. So I went outside to go get him from the car. Humbly, he just drove himself, pulled up. He's like, hey, Ricky, check it out. I don't know if Dave, if Stan's going to want to shoot any of this stuff, but I just got some stuff to say. So I, you know, go out to, I, I meet him at the car, walk him through. And I know like at, you know, at any moment he could just decide, I don't want to do this. You know, like he can, while he's walking in, he could not fill the room and feel like, I don't want to do this. You know? So it, it was I literally, I was like, Stan, I'm, I'm walking to the house with Dave for coming. We walked in there and, it, you know, it was just a moment where it was myself, Dave and Stan and Stan looked at him. He's like, you good? And he's like, He's like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. That's all I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do it. I'm coming in. And he literally went out there and just had a Dave moment out there. And we all just sat and just like, like we're just gonna sit here. And it was one of the first times, you know, especially we didn't expect him to say this stuff on tape, that he just kind of explained where he was coming from on things. And he was definitely in a different place. This is after he left the Chappelle show and came back from Africa. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know probably one of the most intimate first encounters with Dave where it was just a, a trusting moment, you know, if, um, and then when, as Dave has been, you know, working on a set and thinking, Oh, I think I'm going to come back. You know, there've been other shows that have been shot, but you know, that of course Stan was shooting, you know, Dave will call on Thursday and say, I think I want to shoot this thing Friday. You know, and if, and of course, this has to be the quality that it needs to be. It has to be, you know, it has to be excellent. And you just don't shoot Dave any kind of way, you know. Um, so when we yet he handles things the same way he does his normal performance life, which is he'll say, uh, "Yeah, I want to perform in this place tomorrow night," and. There's no social media, there's nothing, yet there's a line around the door, it's sold out. And so in the productions, naturally, he would think, hey, you know, Stan, Ricky, they, these guys can put they it together it. in time. They know all the people, they'll yep. figure it out. They'll get the permits together and get it all together. Exactly. So we sit down, we sat down, Stan, um, uh, Stan, Dave, and myself, and he just, you know, we just talked about, like, are you you're ready to let this go. He's like, yeah, and we, you know, we shot it with, on his terms, you know, we shot it, he paid for it. You know, this was his moment. And he was just in such a great space. Like this was in a space that I'd never seen Dave in before. He wasn't angry. He wasn't um, bitter about anything. He wasn't, you know, he felt really, um, so clear and tell our audience where he wanted to shoot 
Um, we shot at the Palladium. So now the Palladium is a place where you don't really shoot a lot of comedy specials. It's not, not set up all. for comedy. Okay. And, and when you shoot Dave, you shoot him in a very intimate, like it, he wants to feel the audience around him. It needs to be intimate, no matter if it's the huge venue, it still has to be intimate, you know, for him to, you know, do what he does on stage and to, and a receptive crowd, like the crowd, you know, all of these things have to come together to make him feel like he could be at his best. And I felt challenged to make sure that everything was just right upon him coming in. So how did Dave figure out what to do with her? Was it all about trust? And he just said, Stan, listen, I trust you just let's not make it as much as the HBO thing. Can you do it for half of that? And whatever you pay yourself after that, do it. Or was there a different kind of philosophy and business of how it went down? You know, with, with Dave, you know, when we sat down, you know, the understanding was that I will treat this money as if it was my own. So that was the moving on stance protective of, of, you know, no one being exploitative of, of Dave, you know, he, he has a very small, like he said, very small core group. And, you know, it was important that I sat down with his one accountant that he trusts dearly and that I, you know, had conversations with her and, um, and really, you know, explained a lot to people that don't necessarily know TV, but, you know, there was definitely a you know, sense of patience that you need to sit here and really explain why you have to pay for this and what this is going to cost. And, you know, and keeping this was probably the smallest crew I've ever used to shoot a show this big. Like we turned the show around literally on Wednesday. They announced. Oh, we're going to sh- we're going to shoot your show this weekend. I mean, we're going to even do a show this weekend at the Palladium. We announced a show Wednesday at like six o'clock, six thirty. All six shows were sold out. Another artist, you have to think, OK, is he going to sell out this? Or are we going to have this? You never have to worry with Dave and you don't even understand how it's happening. He's the only comedy artist in the world that doesn't have a promotional infrastructure for his shows. He's the only artist I know in the world that's successful. It doesn't even have a social media presence. It's just all word of mouth, the old fashioned way. Just like like the Chardet album comes out, you hear it's coming out and you're just (laughs) going to get it. Like, you know, it's really not about promotion, but you know, it was, um, and then it was, you know, figuring out what does this look like? What does this feel like? And how do we create this environment for Dave that he feels comfortable just being naked on the stage? And, you know, what are the things that um, that is going to, you know, that is going to take? And, you know, it was there's very few people that it's myself, Stan and the editor. Like no one got to see it. No one could, you know, see anything. You, my crew couldn't even have phones, you know, um, we're, I mean, soap is footage is so precious as we're, you know, capturing it. And, you know, and then we don't know, like we might shoot this and Dave might say, that's not the show. People want to work with geniuses and people will work for less to work with geniuses. And so here you did a show and a special that I don't know, cause I'm not privy to the books, but I can guarantee you significantly less than any special that any other uh, network ever gave him to produce anything. And it probably looks 10 times better. 
And, you know, and Dane was in, involved. Like it wasn't just like, oh, just show up. Like he was like, I want to shoot. I want to shoot with these red cameras. We're like, it's not just the cameras, but you know, they just come as just a body. Everything's an add-on, and you have to have more staff because they have to pull focus. You know, they're incredibly detailed, expensive, and the difficult part about it is, is that there's no negotiation on those cameras. You know, normally camera packages you can have a negotiation with. I think it's changing now, <laughs> but those cameras at the time pay the money or you don't pay it. Absolutely, and. You know, so that, so it was challenging to, you know, make all this. And I felt like I can't let Dave down and I can't let Stan down. Like I'm the best producer ever whenever I produce with Stan. Like I feel like he, I always get pushed to excellence and what I think is, what I think is great, even greater. And, um, and I feel such a responsibility of like never wanting to let them down. And knowing that David trusts me with, this continent to make this happen and to make it happen, you know, for, you know, a number and to stick to it. And no matter what happened, that still had to be, you know, the number. And then I had to then enlist people that I trusted implicitly, like, my audio was only only going to be trusted to Michael Abbott. Dave seems to me to be the kind of guy who would be like, listen, treat it like you see your own money. I also always want you to come to me if there's something that you think should be an add-on or an extra. Don't be afraid to say, listen, in order to do it this way, it's going to cost 21000 more here, 7000 there, 8000 there. Did you feel like Stan and you would feel like you let Dave down if you came back to him and said that? Um, yeah, because he's like, you know, this is what I want, even though he, you know, he's the one who, you know, wanted this change. You know, this is where I feel like as a producer where you have to start to be, you have to be creative. And then when I found out that Dave had owned, you know, some his own red cameras, I was like, well, why don't I go to the owner of red? Let's talk to him. Like, you know, how can we make this happen? Because, you know, it'd be great for your show to, you know, for this show to be shot with your cameras and, you know, what can we work out and, you know, then work with the camera house. And, you know, like it was all of that was a part of, you know, like how do we make this happen? And, you know, then I have to think like now my reputation is on the line with these different camera companies, because what if the show doesn't see the light of day? What if Dave Schuster is like, I don't like it then it's a distinct possibility that like, oh, they did this for free and you couldn't, you know, and you couldn't deliver on your, on their end. So, you know, I, it meant a whole lot to me to make sure that this happened, you know, in the way, but kept Dave approach all along the way of, you know, this is where we are. This is what's going on. These are what my challenges are, but also, and this is what the fix for it is. Um, you know, and he really doesn't want to know about, that he's like, what, what's going to happen? What's the end, end result? Um, and literally as we were shooting the shows, you know, he came off stage and he looked, I saw him, he's like, that's it. We knew like the show five, he just looked just like, we knew that was the show that he was his best. And like, it, you just felt it in the air. Like, Oh my gosh, that was like a great show. And again, for the audience, for Stan and Ricky, when you're producing an hour special and you're doing multiple shows, you want to pick a show that's your master. That's your base. That's the show that you're going to use 
to edit from. And then if there's an amazing routine in show four that just went more detailed than another bit he did in that one, you can take that from there and put it in. And then if there's this great side thing he did in show one, that's there that got a great response that he loved you'd put it there and that's how that would work so it was a matter of making these you know out of these six shows like how do you bring the best of it you know and this is like one of the first shows that Dave, you know dave didn't smoke you know like he didn't smoke on stage so you know like how, how does that look how does that feel for him you know when you're saying the fifth show was a show he didn't smoke on stage no, he, he smoked he, on the other he didn't smoke on any of the shows but this was Got one it. of those shows that we taped that he didn't smoke so you know normally he's you know it's comfortable smokes has a moment he was just you know had him not smoke on this so this is uh, shooting with somebody who smokes versus somebody who doesn't smoke you think oh, so what's the difference who cares when somebody's smoking they have the cigarette in all different places and there's a smoke coming out so when you're shooting a guy who smokes you have to commit to keeping things in that you might not want to keep in because you can't make the shot work yeah you know and you know Dave, you know, as I talked to some of the comics, I, I workshop with a lot of comics and, you know, I say, you know, Dave is a master of storytelling and he brought back the art of storytelling, I think, to the stage that we haven't seen in a long time. Like it was very, you know, dare I say Richard Pryor-esque in the storytelling and the vivid storytelling and, and for him to, you know, to be able to capture it and capture it in an intimate place where even the audience at home feels like they were intimately there. And because in the audience, they're hanging on every word that he says, they're waiting to hear what the next word is. And, you know, and you, and I'm looking at Dave cause I've, you know, been seeing the show for a while. I'm like, is he going to do this one? Like he's going to change the show. He's going to go with what he feels and what, you know, what works. And, you know, one of the moments when he says, you know, fourth time I met OJ, the whole house just erupts because he, he does this uh, recall on this joke of, you know, when I met OJ. And it was really just great, great storytelling, you know, and the art of the suspense and being able to just say, like, you just had to peek into the mind of Dave and the fact that these are the same conversations that you would have with him offstage were just, you know, those are the times where you feel like, oh, this was such a great moment. Like to feel this and to feel what that audience erupting is in such a genuine, there's no laugh track. There's, this is all straight organic audience and you know, no seat fillers. These are Dave's quintessential fans. And the sixth show ends and he goes backstage and you go backstage and you're there with him. You're there with Stan. How do you feel? What does he say to you? You know, the first thing Dave said, he said, you guys got it? We're like, we got it. You know, and then there was a moment where, you know, there's a lot of people waiting outside that wanted to come in and, you know, and, you know, you, Dave just wanted a minute, you know, just kind of soak it in. And I was happy to be in that room during that moment of him just taking that sigh of like, everyone felt like we have something great here. You know, and, and it was just, and it, it was a, you know, a look and eye like, thank you. Like gratitude, like thank you for, you know, being here. And I know it wasn't an easy road, but 
being here and making this happen and quickly and we're going to get to it. And, you know, then we start the real process of editing. It's one of the greatest moments being in a dressing room with Dave. And when I was in New York right before he was doing SNL, he graciously invited me to see one of his impromptu shows at midnight at some place that doesn't even appear like it has comedy. And I'm just standing there after he gets off and gets a standing ovation. And I'm just standing on the side and there's a whole bunch of people around me. He's walking towards the place of the dressing room. And he just reaches out and he grabs me. He says, come on, Barry. And you go in the dressing room, you sit down with him, and there's so many distractions, so many people everywhere, beautiful men, beautiful women, everybody on their phones. And he has this thing where it's just you and him. Mm-hmm. You feel like and you're the only person in the room. no one else exists. I know what you feel. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Yeah that I get to know what that feels like because I truly consider him to be one of the few geniuses of our profession. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of somebody, and I want you to tell me what your thought process is. Cat Williams. Misunderstood. <laughs> Misunderstood. Cat, <laughs> I remember having a conversation of like, you can't do the premature crazy. You know, like everybody gets their chance, but I feel like you have to, after you've kind of um, made enough money shown that, that you are that success, then you get rights to do a whole lot more. Before that, they just feel like you're you're a mess. Everyone has their moments, but it's just you have to time it out, right? And you know, even when I shot, when I got called to do that show, um, you know, everyone wanted to. The first thing I said, I said, well, "What's going on with you now? What are we talking about?" And he's like, "Yeah, a room full of people." Cow says, "Hi, his crew. A room full of people." It's like no one here has asked me that. He's like, everybody clear the room. It was one of those kind of things. Those managers and agents were like, no, we don't really, you know. He's like, just let me talk to her, you know. And we, and we just talked. And I just said, just, just tell me where you are. Like, I can't possibly capture this without knowing who you are, what's going on with you right now, what's making you happy, sad, pissed, like all these things. Like, like let's just talk about it. And it goes back to everyone just wants to be heard. Like, it was a time where he just needed a moment for people, for someone to listen to him and try to bring out the best in that, in that moment. And I, I think, I think Kat is hilarious to me. Mike Epps. Love that guy. Love that guy. I love where he's going. I'm so excited with this Mike. I've seen him in a lot of different stages. Martin Lawrence. Hopeful. Jamie Foxx. He evolved. He's changed a lot. 
I knew him in the Eric days. R. Kelly. I think another misunderstood. Genius, though. Genius. Snoop Dogg. Dear friend. Sweetheart. B E T. Hopeful. Stan Lathan. Stan, I say class act. Um, so authentic in this business. Like, I love it. He will have no problem with telling you this motherfucker in a minute and, and mean it. And I appreciate that. Chris Rock. Um, funny, funny guy. Kevin Hart. Superstar. Superstar. Did you see it? Did I see that he was going to be that? No. What do you think got him there? I feel like everyone has their rock bottom. And I feel like at his, he, he just chose different. He's like, I'm choosing this. And, and his worth ethic is, is like none other. Um, I've seen him just go so hard in the pain and be so dedicated, singular focus on what he's what he was choosing i think we see the results of it awesome your proudest moment in show business dave, I, i'm really proud of dave i'm really proud of how that all came together and that it was really on his terms and it was beautiful and it was exactly like it was planned to be like i'm really proud of that show it's nice to know also the greatest artists in the world who have the most money can still bet on themselves and we all know if you don't know already just google netflix dave chappelle <laughs> and you can see what that bet earned him so that's pretty nice bet your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level I think when, when John Cosette died, John Cosette was, um, he was, his company had done all of the major award shows and his dad was Pierre Cosette, who was, um, who created the Grammys. And um, the day that John passed and I just remembered feeling like, oh, he was really, he was moving at such a, he was in such a great space that it, that I hadn't seen John in a long time. And he had his play and won a Tony. He was really excited. Business was going well. And um, and then to see it happen, to see him pass at a time where he was in such a happy place was just a reminder for me to keep my head down and keep going. And, you know, John was the one who would, he knew every PA on the set. Like he walked the floor. You know, he was a crew guy. And, um, and he's always been a reminder for me of, um, you know, that you can't do this alone, Ricky, you know? And I think that has definitely fueled me to keep going. You know, when I did, John had never had a, a woman run a show for him and never a black woman for sure. And one of the first shows I did was in New York with the New York um, unions. And he was like, how are you going to do this, Ricky? He's like, do you have, I said, John, I've got it. He's like, it's tough. It's tough out there. Those, you know, New York unions. I said, I'll call you if I need you. And I prided myself that I didn't call him, you know? And when he got to the set, he was like, you did it. He's like, and I know they took you through the ringer. You know, I was like, 
you know, and it was that moment where, you know, there hadn't been, you know, women and definitely not, you know, a woman of color to take on that in that, in that capacity. And that, you know, he just empowered and kind of put the hand in the small of my back with, um, with that show. And I was, and we were just off and running from that point. So I think that was definitely some, a fuel for me. You said something really interesting just now. You said he put his hand on the small of my back and guided me through the process. And one of the most fascinating uh, instances between men and women starting a relationship and Believe it or not, there's more meaning for a man who puts his hand on the small of your back. There's more power and meaning there so than anything. You know where I get that from? Um, we got called in to do, this is before Hillary decided she was going to run. And, or I'm not before she decided, but there was like, we've got to, you know, they said her camp was trying to figure it out. And so... Um, they brought me in to, you know, figure out what could be the visuals for her before her launching a campaign. You had these donors, they would be giving money, you know, getting a little donor fatigue, like, what are we going to do? We got to get something out there. And um, so they wanted us to come up with something. And I was like, well, I always go back to the room, like, let me, see, what's going on with you? What's happening in your life? Like, what, what can we be asked? Because my, um, my first thought was that I think vice principal, like, I don't necessarily, I love you as a woman, but like, how do I connect to you? Like, what's the humanizing part of you? And I said, you know, let me just go and shoot, can, let me just go and shoot people to talk about who you are and come back and we just present that. And so um, we went to the steak fry in Iowa, you know, which is, you know, big deal. And, um, and Senator Harkins uh, uh, were there at the steak fry and, Lots of people, and they, a lot of people had things to say. Millennials, older people, young people, you know, they just had ideas. So I just had really candid conversations with them. And then there's this time where you have the rope line where um, they're, it's a humanizing moment where you're, you're cooking food and handing it to people. And then there's the rope line where all the press comes out. And it was a moment where, you know, Bill was there, and I'm sorry, President Clinton was there, and, and, um, and Hillary was there. And in the rope line, I saw him. You know, everyone was Mr. President Clinton, and she was standing right behind him. And he took his hand and just gently pushed, just pushed from the small of her back, and she moved forward. And to me, if I ever wrote a book about the experience with that whole Clinton time, was that it would be the hand in the small of my back because for me, it was such a pivotal moment of where she was so used to being the strong, supportive person behind him. And although everyone was kind of screaming for him, he was like, this is your moment. And he gently put his hand on the smaller back and kind of pushed her to the forefront of the line. And for me, the you know, you mentioned that, and that was such a touching moment. I was happy that I even captured it on film because it was like a changing of the guards of like, this is your moment, take it, you've got this. You know, so whatever people think about their relationship, you know, it's those kind of, to me, humanizing moments that was just like a vote of confidence and a, a feeling of, you know, like, this is nice. Amazing. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a 
middle-class environment, maybe not having any vision, knowing what's going on, not playing the game like other teenagers, and also somebody who might be in a minority environment trying to make it in a world that might be perceived as not necessarily as favorable to other groups as yours. And secondly, you've seen so many great artists, musical artists, comedians. What advice do you have for the young artist of how to take their craft and get to the next level and have the kind of career of the amazing musicians and singers, songwriters, or comedians that you've worked with? I think I'll take the second part first. Um, you know, if you love what you do, do it. If you're a writer, write. If you're a comedian, tell jokes. Like a comedian that comes to me and says, I have seven, you know, I just have seven minutes or they're worried about burning materials. Like, you're not a comedian yet because when you're really a comedian, you have life is material at all times. And in this day and age, I say capture it, control your content as much as possible because content is king. Right now we're gobbling up content like crazy and there's no reason why you can't shoot, edit, produce, create your own voice and own that lane. And then similarly, what advice do you have for the young executive person who wants to be in your side of the business? I would, you know, my advice is to stay focused, have integrity with everything that you do in a time where it's easy to not. And more than anything, always sit at the feet at the greats of the greats because there's not one show that I work on that I don't learn. And I'm always open. I start every show with what am I going to learn? How can I learn to be a better person and, you know, have a better exchange with people? Fantastic. Ricky, this has been amazing, man. I know you said everybody just wants to be heard. I hope you felt heard today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. Our audience is going to love this. Thank you so much. Oh, fantastic. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on. Great Conversations, five stars, by Meet the Press, April 14, 2016. And it reads, if you like great conversation about show business and life, this one's for you. Thank you so much, Meet the Press. I appreciate it. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. 
I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.